Well, I am excited to be recording another episode, the second episode of the Inside the Box podcast with Michelle Colbert. I just recorded uh, our first ever podcast episode with a guest last week, and it was with Ross Gay, who's a poet and educator, and he talked a lot about his Book of Delights work and what that's meant in his teaching, and just, it was a really great conversation. And the purpose of this podcast is really to speak to educators who are also out there doing a lot of other creative work in their life and and really kind of understand what this kind of creativity work means for their role as an educator. And today I'm speaking to somebody, uh, Michelle Colbert, who's been a, an amazing collaborator in this MakeSpace project, which is funding and making this podcast possible. And so we're going to get to hear from Michelle about, you know, the experience of engaging with this work. And I'm really interested to hear about some of the other stuff that Michelle and her colleagues do at their school up in the David Douglas School District. To start off, I'm going to ask every guest that comes on to think about and share what creativity was like for them as a child. Uh, when they remember feeling most curious and creative upon reflection. So would you share that with us, Michelle? Yeah, thanks for also having me and including me in this amazing creative engagement discovery. <laughs> you know, when I think back throughout my childhood, I was always a curious little tinkerer. I really liked to take things apart when I was a kid to see how they worked and then really interested in how to put them back together to see if they would still work. So I, you know, would get in trouble sometimes as a child for getting a new toy and promptly taking it apart. You know, so sometimes I couldn't always get it to go back together exactly how it was. So I was very interested in how things worked and why they worked. And I think that that's something that's been a thread in my life. That's not only with just, art and creative processes, but I also have a background in, in behavior science and um, working with trauma brain youth and, and behaviorally challenged students. And I also have like an endorsement in special education with a concentration with behavior. And so not only do I want to know why, how things work, but I also want to know how people work too. So I kind of just have a natural tinker type brain. When I was a, a really young kid, I was actually a musician before I got into visual art. I started off kind of with music being the main creative outlet as a child. And I was always interested in art too, but, in, and my mom was great, you know, like I come from a broken home, you know, struggling financially as a child. So we didn't have a lot of money. My mom did the best she could as far as like, you know, affording these piano lessons or, you know, doing whatever she could. And my stepfather at the time was completely against um, art and music being any sort of focus. And so it was very much looked at as like, these are hobbies. You're not going to make a life out of this. You need to find, figure out what your plan is. And being the stubborn child that I was, I was kind of like, oh yeah, watch. And so I really just spent the remainder of my life doing nothing but pursuing art and music as a career. When I left high school, I was 99.9% .9 sure I was going to be a rock star and played in bands and, you know, tried really hard to like become a musician. And then, you know, as you can see, that really panned out. I decided at some point to go to college and 
art was what I, I shifted. And, and I did, I went, my, my mom, again, having foresight and knowing me as we know our children, did enroll me in an arts-focused alternative school when I was in high school. And so I was able to go to a, a high school that was very experimental at the time. So this was in the 90s. It was the beginning of alternative schools being a thing. And, you know, most of the alternative schools were kind of for the high school dropouts, which I was would have probably been well on my way to becoming had I not been transferred to this arts-focused school. And, you know, really, I, I think that that helped propel me on the path that I am today. The people that I met, the encouragement that I received. And I was, again, still focused on music at that time. I had, I was able to take visual arts classes, but the fact that the school had a, a a system where they called it integrated thematic, where they would integrate art into every single subject. Mm -hmm. And it made learning so much easier for me. Mm -hmm. It just all of a sudden things started clicking. And I didn't start this school until my sophomore year, my freshman year, I really struggled. Middle through junior high school years were very hard in school. And I was actually diagnosed with a, a learning disability as well. And so it made things even more difficult, which is why I have, you know, the special education endorsement is because I wanted to help kids that were like me. So having this learning disability and struggling in school, it was when I came to this art school that things all of a sudden started making sense. And I, I had this perception of myself that I just sucked at school. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that I just was not being taught to my learning style <laughs> and until I was. And then all of a sudden it was like, wow, I, I get it. I, now I understand. And I feel like that throughout my life, art, music has always been intertwined and that luckily I'm just stubborn enough that anybody that tried to naysay me, I was like, mm -hmm. no, like, I'm going to do this anyways. My belief mm -hmm. is that this is my soul's purpose. Mm -hmm. That ultimately everything that I have done in my life, regardless if it was even connected to art or music or teaching or, you know, creative engagement or whatever, that all of it culminated in where I am today. And what I'm doing today is, I believe, fulfilling my soul's purpose. So, you know, sometimes it's hard to see the forest through the trees. We don't know how life experiences will add up and take us to where we are. Um, there's no way to predict, you know, these yeah these pathways, these road bumps, but I strongly believe that all the things that I've been through led me where I am right now, which is the place mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be. When you said that, you know, you, you went into that school and you kind of found like how it resonated with the, your approach to learning. Was that, you know, because of this integration that was happening? School has changed so much over the last 20, 30 years, right? So the the idea behind the school was that it, you would be doing these research projects and that you would become um, involved with your own learning and through the development of, you know, a creative aspect or, or whatever, whatever it was, I, this was a long time ago now. So while yeah. I can't remember specifics about when I was in high school, I remember that that, that way of learning helped so much in other areas because I knew I was good at art and music. Like I, that was something that came naturally to me. Yeah. So I knew that those areas I wasn't struggling in, but math and science, I was not really able to mm -hmm. perform at the rote, you know, way that they want you to memorize and regurgitate. And that's just not how my brain works, but I could create a project that would display my understanding of yeah. the concept yeah. without having, you know, because I had like test anxiety and all kinds of other things that would 
inhibit me from being able to take in information and then kind of spew it back out into a test like format, which I feel like is the sort of, you know, ticky tacky boxes that they typically put, you know, on onto children in, in education. So it definitely lended itself a lot to form forming a, a positive sense of a learner in myself that I didn't have before. And B, also really structuring how myself as a teacher has have has operated since, you know, I mean, like I, I'm also working from my own experience, what I know worked for me. And I always knew that I wanted to work with students that were like me, that came from poverty, that, you know, maybe had trauma background, and this is why I feel like all of these experiences now are like perfectly married. Yeah. You know, even the special education background with, you know, behavior yeah. really helped. I'm curious, you know, like with the students that you're working with, you use the term trauma brain. So if you can unpack that a little bit and also share, you know, what is it about these, this kind of environment that you're creating with students in the school that you're working in that is using kind of tapping into creativity and so on to support them. I mean, the reality is, is that it, it doesn't work for a lot of students. Some kids it does work for. Um, it just narrows the playing field. And what it narrows it to is kids who come from privilege and have, you know, no other worries other than this one thing that they have to do, right? So we're talking about, you know, kids who have like what I call happy childhood syndrome, right? Grew up with both parents, they've had a relatively, you know, easy life. That all they've had to worry about is school. Like that's a very small percentage of of kids and because we're collectively experiencing a trauma as far as this pandemic is concerned. So any kid who potentially had happy childhood syndrome probably is experiencing for the first time a type of trauma that could carry forward and that will change the learning style moving forward. However, a lot of students, especially the kids I work with, trauma brain students, are students who have experienced, you know, any number of things that change the way that the brain actually is able to perceive and, and take in information and put it back out, right? And this, we're talking about a wide spectrum. This could be from um, family trauma. It could be because they've experienced homelessness. It could be because they've experienced drug addiction in their family, split homes, any kind of inconsistency, right? And so what happens with trauma brain kids is that regardless of whatever the trauma is, the hierarchy of needs changes, right? So they have to feel safe and loved and cared for long before you can start injecting any kind of learning or any kind of content knowledge. Like you can't just hit them with the content knowledge right out the gate because their brain is not wired to receive that because they are at a 10. Like they come in the building, they come in the room, they come into the Google Meet or whatever it is, and they are dealing with the chaos of their lives that so they they have to know first that they're safe there's like this really great quote it's not from me but it says kids who are loved at home come to school to learn and kids that are not come to school to get loved and you know and and i believe like the the core of not only my teaching but i think like just a life philosophy is is that the most important thing for anybody to experience in this life is unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And that means I love you no matter 
what you do, you know, I might have expectations for you and I may get disappointed if you don't meet those expectations, but it doesn't change the fact that I love you. And I try, you know, I think about my students a lot and I think, you know, they have so many crappy adults in their life. Just don't be another crappy adult. Like show them what, you know, a positive adult role model can look like. Show them what's possible. So as far as like my philosophy, my teaching style, the first thing is just to get them feeling comfortable. And part of that is to allow kids to express themselves, to express their culture, to do basically like community building exercises, low stakes projects that, you know, are really easy, that aren't skill-based, that anybody can do. Let them experience some, some success so they can feel what it feels like to be successful in the class. When a student walks into my room and I'm in their presence, if they start treating me badly, then it shows me that that's their experience with adults. Yeah. If I And then they are trying to control the interaction by saying, if I treat you like this, if I do this, then you'll do this. Yeah. So that I can kind of be in control of that. So I'm going to... I've been told I'm a bad kid. I've been told I'm a bad student. So I'm going to act that way. And then you're going to respond by, I'm going to get in trouble because I'm doing these behaviors. And so when a behavior crops up, you know, you kind of like you're, you're trained and your instinct is to squash it, send them out. I don't have time. And when a behavior pops up in my room, then I just pull the kid aside. And then I ask them very simply, you know, what I have done to make them, yeah. treat me this way. You have to know that every child's behavior has absolutely nothing to do with you yeah. and has everything to do with every other adult that they've encountered prior to wow. you. You're sharing this as like, this is, you've got years of experience of seeing this play out and that it's become an intuition, but it's a really different way of looking at disruptive behavior than I think we are trained in education to understand. And so, I, yeah, I want to like, this is really, that's so, what you just said was so important. So important. So the school I work with is called Fur Ridge Campus. It is alternative school in the David Douglas School District. David Douglas School District is, um, David Douglas High School, sorry, is the largest high school in the state of Oregon, housing about roughly 4,000 students. Um, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less, depending right now, but our, um, so the district has one high school and one alternative high school. So we are considered the dropout prevention school for our district. So a student will be placed in our alternative school if they are not on track to graduate. Kids who have um, attendance issues, kids with behavioral issues. So if they get expelled or kicked out for fighting or for drugs, if they have a probation officer, if they're gang affected, we do have one of the most diverse districts in the state of Oregon as well. Um, seven countries are represented. Uh, our school is predominantly um, Hispanic and African-American students. So, you know, I mean, I think that when the kids come to our school, they already have this kind of chip on their shoulder of they've been told that they're a bad kid, right? Or that they've failed out of the, the main high school. And so they kind of come with this that attitude, but then once they get there, it's we are very much a soft landing for them. You know, when they when they come in, they're every teacher on staff is trained, you know, in, in trauma brain responses. And, you know, we have a very different way of discipline that that falls 
away from what you would see in a traditional high school. Like I said, if you're a teacher and you have a class of 45 students and you have a kid that's, you know, causing an issue, you're, you're trained that you're trying to teach the student body here, you know, like that kid needs to go if it's being distraction. So, you know, I, I think that that's, it's difficult because I think everybody's situation is different. And I, I do feel like all, all the kids that are standing, all those one kids that are standing up and being an issue in the class of 45, that's my entire class. <laughs> it's, it's full of those one kids that got sent out and got sent out and got sent out. But every time they get sent out, you know, it's sending that message that you don't belong here or mm -hmm. you're not worth my time or I don't have time for you, which is uh, typically my guess would be the kid that's got the behavior is probably receiving this message on a lot of in a lot of places yeah. and that the anger, the frustration, whatever they're feeling, you know, if we could just you know, remember yeah. that that is nothing to do with us yeah. and that it has everything to do with their, their experience. And if we can change their experience with the adult and the interactions that they have, then you might be able to even change a trajectory of where a kid is headed in life. Right. I mean, powerful. You know, I, I think that that's, that is the goal, right? In education. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the, the goal is to not only just light the fire, fill the vessel, you know, teach the children, but it's also to, you know, maybe show the kids that there is another way, there is another path to mm -hmm. like encourage them to, to, you know, be the captain of their own ship, right? And um, I think the, I call the kids that I work with this, the kids, I say that they're the furthest from opportunity because they're the kids that are slipping through the cracks, yeah. you know? And those are the kids that I feel like need the intervention. Yeah. And that means that I gotta be really patient. It means that I have to be really um, calm and I have to, again, like I need to hold, I tell the, my students, I was like, I will hold your baggage for you. Like I will, like you can leave it at the door, I will hold it for you so that while you're in here, you can be okay, you can be calm. Like you, you can just, just let it on me, you know? And, uh, and I'll hold that, I'll hold that for you. Um, while you're here so that you can learn yeah. and that's you know that's really the the key for working with trauma brain youth and and again like I'm just so curious myself about what's going to happen when we come back from this pandemic like are we going to have um, students who are going to be exhibiting trauma brain behaviors that maybe never did before right yeah. so hard time concentrating you know sort of like that fractaled um, sense of learning. I mean, like the, the amount of screen time that kids are getting right now is also going to maybe yeah. have a developmental. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's the relation and the number of relationships that they have now, it's now been narrowed down to in their lives. You know, it, it's so much more limited than it had been. And the relationships are so vitally important. Yeah. Um, I, so I would love to, um, to come back a little bit to, you know, your, your kind of process, your, your, what's mm -hmm. a daily, what's like a creative process in your day and, and creative routine that you bring that's in your life, whether it's in teaching or outside of teaching, um, 
you know, creative routines, you know, in the Make Space Project is something that we really focus on. Uh, and one of the outcomes from this podcast is hopefully to kind of gather, you know, the creative routines that people use in their classroom or in their lives um, to add to our library. So I have this thing, which is I like to do all of the things, right? And so I'm kind of a collector, so to speak, of experience. So I like to try to learn new art forms. And so it shifts all the time. Like, like I said, I collect musical instruments. I like as a hobby. I like to learn how to play them. Um, in art, it's kind of the same thing. Like right now, I'm really interested <laughs> in learning how to do like embedding LEDs into things since I'm learning like wiring and I'm also really interested in like virtual reality art and trying to figure out how to connect this technology that we've been sort of thrust in in education to meaningful learning experiences for my students. So it's kind of a, like I'm trying to catch up a little bit on the technology side of arting and I really like graphic design a lot so I've been trying to like hone my graphic design skills as well. And I also kind of work on the side as a photographer, a videographer for a variety of different things. And I, I do make like hats and shirts and tote bags. And so I have like sort of like a craft side hustle. You know, part of what we are trying to really celebrate in MakeSpace is, the, you know, the secret life of teachers. Like what, it, what are teachers doing behind the scenes in their lives? And that is often incredibly creative and entrepreneurial and, you know, in large part, not really recognized as a skill set and talent that, you know, can absolutely enhance the experience in school. And you were talking about like enhancing your skill set in technology for the classroom. So is there something that you've done recently with your students in that realm and where you've kind of taken stuff that you've been working on personally or, you know, share something if you'd like. Recently, I got involved with a grant from Nike, like an innovation grant. So we've gotten these little, uh, they're like Arduino boards or like, I don't know if you know what an Arduino board is, but it's basically like a programmable board um, that the students are going to get that they will be programming to do different things. And I also do these uh, where I teach them wiring and they do make little hopping robots. Uh, with just some paper clips and a battery and a little mini motor. And so they learn about like DC motors and then we, I show them how to like put it together or whatever. Mm. There's a variety of different things I do. A little bit of, I have a, um, teach them 3D printing as well. So they do, right now we're, they're learning about the manufacturing process. And so they learned about, we did Tinkercad, they learned about CAD, they, they did a 3D design project. I give them kind of like a problem. Like here's a problem. One of the problems is you have headphones and they have a cord. And if you don't have something to wrap the cord around, then the cord gets tangled. So they then had to design a headphone cord organize, you know, wrap something to wrap it around in 3D, design it in 3D and then I printed it for them and they were able to go to the school and pick it up. So kind of going through the design process, going through the fabrication cool. process. Wow. Now they're working on creating an invention, which is actually kind of cool because they use the many uses game as part of this um, learning how to be an innovator. And so we talk a lot about, about 
about the manufacturing process and about how you can either innovate or invent, right? So if you invent something, it's like taking, like manifesting something that doesn't exist. When you innovate something, that means you take something that exists and you approve upon it. And um, that that innovation can, you know, there, there's these seven things of innovation that they look at. And then now they're working on this project where they've taken their invention what, or innovation, whatever it might be. And then they're having to figure out, they're doing like a shark tank. So they're having to figure out like how much would it cost to make it? What kind of materials would be necessary? Who would they distribute it to? They either make a commercial, an advertisement or a jingle to go along with their design. They come up with a name. And so this is kind of like their, their final project. So they're learning how to like work through creating something or inventing something. I mean, 90% of being an artist is making something out of nothing <laughs> or looking at materials in a different way. And I think that you know, um, in, as an art teacher, one of the first things I do with kids, and this is um, the, the class that I do this stuff with is an industrial art. So that's my career and technical education class that I'm able to teach under the art umbrella. But I also teach just a general art class. And always the first thing I have them do is define like, what is art to you? And then when a student defines what is art to them, then I ask them the next question, which is how does your definition of art privilege you or marginalize you as an artist? So if you are thinking art is being able to draw something perfectly as it looks like photorealism, but you can't do photorealism, then you just put yourself outside the box of what can be considered art. And shifting the perception of being an artist sometimes doesn't mean that you can just draw something exactly perfect. Sometimes it just means that you can take ideas and conceptualize things and that you're a creative thinker. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's more about the process of being a creative thinker without the fear of, oh, if I, if I draw it this way, it's wrong. The fear of being wrong is so strong in so many of us, in teens especially, that often it will, the, wrong, the fear of wrong will stop the beginning of try. <laughs> that per protection mechanism of I don't want to feel dumb. I don't want to even try because that's protecting myself from potential failure. I say failure is the most important step of being a successful artist. Like you have to, and sometimes I do make kids do this process. It like every time it's, it's a struggle, but I have them work really hard on a drawing and then rip it up. And mm -hmm. then I just to show them that nothing is permanent. Wow. That, you know, you, and then they're like, what do you mean I have to rip it up? And like, you have to rip it up and then you have to weave it back together. Right. So the idea that sometimes art, you, nothing is precious when it comes to art. You have to be willing to let go any point in time and change your direction and change your idea. And like being able to shift your thinking instead of that concrete, like, I'm going to do these three steps and paint by numbers is going to turn out and it's going to look exactly like this. Like, being a creative thinker is not being able to paint something to look exactly how the paint by numbers. It's really being able to like look at it and go like, okay, well maybe if I change these colors then the whole painting will be different or be willing to let go of yeah. anything at any given time. That, I mean, that's a beautiful routine. Like what you just shared is like to actually lead students through that process. Are there any other creative routines like that, that are just about kind of disruption or about racing mistake? Well, I got to get the kids to trust me initially that, you know, so I, and a lot of times I'll build on that. And in reality, working in art is more about learning how to manipulate materials 
than it is about like being able to like, again, draw something perfectly, right? I mean, some people are just naturally good at drawing something perfectly and that's great and wonderful. That's a wonderful talent and skill. I don't myself possess that skill. But, you know, I mean, that sometimes people look at me and they're like, why aren't you an art teacher? And I'm like, yeah, but I, I really can't draw. <laughs> like, you know, I can like, draw a little bit, but I'm not like some prolific drawing artist. You know, I had to also shift my belief system and what I thought being a, a successful artist was and go through a lot of different art forms. And I think I'm always, always like, oh, I want to learn that. I want to learn that. Like, I just am just a lifelong learner of different mm -hmm. art mediums or whatever but when i'm working with kids i kind of go through there's eight causation or creative we'll call them creative causes the first one is confidence so you have to be able to ask a question without fear that it's wrong or the wrong question to ask mm -hmm. so building confidence in kids is so so important so you have to just make that part of the routine is everybody's going to ask a question like i want everybody questioning like even what i'm saying question me like i don't have all the answers the second one is observation my one of my favorite things to tell kids is when in doubt look about mm -hmm. so if you don't know what's going on look around the room see what other people are doing use your powers of observation so just learning to be to see problems to see ideas to look at things differently i have a, a project where i have them just trace shadows right for abstract shapes so it's just really getting to look at like oh okay i'm this is just it was a shadow but now i'm looking at it differently so just changing sort of the artistic lens the other one is humility knowing that you don't know everything I practice that with, with them by, and I model it by saying like, I'm not necessarily the expert in this room. I might be the teacher, but I'm more of a facilitator. I'm a lot of times, like even with robotics and electronics, I'm also figuring those things out. I'm not afraid to bring something into the classroom that I'm not an expert in. And I allow us to all be learners together. And I find that that learning is really, really important. Mindfulness is another one. So just think about, how you think about something. So really going internally and understanding that, you know, as especially as a white teacher in a, in a very diverse school, you know, how culture plays into a part of how things are perceived and, you know, taken in and putting back out, how experience is part of that and allowing kids the opportunity to share their culture and to share their personal experience through their work, I think is very important. Curiosity is another one. So experiment, like we have to be willing to be curious about our learning. If we don't allow kids to become curious about their learning, if we just tell them, here's the questions and here's the answers, memorize this, mm -hmm. they, they're losing the want to be a part of their own learning. They are just a passenger in the vehicle. They are not in charge of anything. So allowing them to sit in the driver's seat of their own educational experience, which can feel really dangerous and scary if you are sitting shotgun, <laughs> you know, like as the educator, but really that's where a lot of like some of the best learning with kids is when they become curious about the work themselves. I also tell kids that if you only learn what is taught to you in school, then you're only going to be as smart as everybody else. So if you want to be smarter than everybody else, you have to take on some learning on your own. You have to be curious and do more research or, you know, deep dive into those things that you're interested in.
resourcefulness is another. So if you don't have the materials right in front of you, like how are you going to make it happen? So like, you know, part of the creative process is we, sometimes you got to turn something into nothing. Like I'm always telling kids like side hustle, side hustle, you know, even fortune 500 companies look for people who have creative backgrounds because they want people who can think outside of the box. You know, they want people who can look at a problem and find different resources. Last two is energy and action. So you have to have the energy to explore and be willing to tinker with something. And, and Banksy, one of my favorite street artists, says, learn to rest, not to quit. So sometimes when kids get frustrated, their first thing is ball it up, throw in the trash, give up, I'm done, forget it, right? And so I, when kids start to get frustrated, I tell them, take a break, take five minutes, get on your phone, do, you know what I mean? Like, it's so taboo, right? Have your kid go on your phone. They're not even supposed to have their phone out in school. But I say take a break because even when I get frustrated with something, I have to walk away. You know, sometimes you just need to disengage. And when you are able to come back at something with a fresh perspective, if you, you know, had time to let that limbic system kind of like calm down, you're not like at a 10 where nothing, no new information, no new ideas can be revealed themselves you calm yourself down, then you can have that energy to get back to it. And then action is don't just think about it, do it. Don't be afraid to make that first mistake or to take that first step. Like you can think about what you want to do all you want, but until you start taking action towards meeting whatever that is, you can't get anywhere unless you take that first step that yeah. you have to be willing to take action for whatever it is you're working for. What's your experience been like in the MakeSpace project? I mean, you've been doing a whole lot of this work prior to starting MakeSpace. Can you share a little bit about your experience in the, you did the foundation course and the Summer Institute and now you're getting to the strategy courses. What stands out to you? What's your experience been like? Well, it's just been great, first of all. It was like showing up to a party that, you know, was, Every, all your favorite things. <laughs> like, you're like, how did you know? How did you know that this is all the things I love the most? And it's really, really well. I was very impressed with how well it's put together, how well it's organized, and how easy to navigate and access all the materials and just the amount of support. And it was really like almost like listening to myself, my own thoughts being told back to me <laughs> by somebody else. To me, it was is just really kind of like constantly hitting nails on heads, you know, and, mm. and I think it was just an easy transition for me because mm. it was like, oh yeah, this is all the things I do and love and see and know are important and yeah. think other people should learn about and understand. and. Through MakeSpace, I learned about programs that I had never used before. It kind of shifted, like I was really struggling with how do I do hands-on, how do I do this, these project-based, you know, which is my, my jam, but how do I do this now online? And so it really helped to give me some structure to work with. Um, mm -hmm. Because I took it over the summer, it gave me a lot of tools that I, I found very helpful going into the school year. Your school, 
represents the, the, the most momentum and enthusiasm that we've ever seen in a school community. Can you share a little bit about why that might be or what that's been like? Sure, yeah. So uh, at this point, I think every teacher in our school will have gone through the foundations course except for maybe two or three teachers. So I would say the majority of the staff, the teachers that that started the Make Space journey over the summer, we've created a professional learning team or PLT uh, where we meet once a month um, to discuss kind of like what kind of creative engagement strategies we're using in our class, like how's it going, sharing resources with each other, that kind of thing. And then I think that will build as there's teachers going through the foundations course I believe all the teachers that took the summer course except for one has moved on to doing the strategies course and have, you know, really, I think, enjoyed it for the same, a lot of the same reasons, like as we reflected on it together, just the, the idea of moving into this. um, I know the English teachers, for instance, are really excited about using metaphor for learning. I think that the math teachers have also been excited to incorporate things like music into math class. And so because our staff is so adept, is that the word I'm going to use? Yeah. At working with trauma brain youth, I think that the the core understanding is already there that using creative engagement strategies is an effective tool to engage these, you know, our student body into their learning. So, you know, I, I believe that they already possessed the sort of drive there and the fear when you say things like creative engagement, project-based learning is, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to have material. I'm going to be in charge of materials. I would guess 85% of teachers don't want materials in their classroom because that creates another layer of material management. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a kind of a fear of if I have materials, I have to manage them. I have to like it makes learning look very kinesthetic, very phonetic. Um, It can be loud. Right. And some teachers are very much used to the quiet, sit in your desk, read quietly, answer questions type of learning. That's what's comfortable to them. And when you start getting materials involved, things get real wily. And so if you're not comfortable with kind of that frenetic environment in your classroom, then how do you still activate the creative engagement brain in kids? How do you still creatively engage kids without having to have that frenetic experience? And this has really taught our teachers a lot about how you can still incorporate creative engagement into learning without necessarily being material dependent, like doing theater exercises, using like music, you know, like tapping into what the kids already do, what they already know, you know, I I feel like has helped our teachers out a lot to engage kids through distance learning. We haven't had the opportunity, obviously, to incorporate any of this into in-person learning, Um, but I do feel like there will be a shift potentially in what teachers would be willing, you know, even just in practice, but what they'd be willing to to kind of allow to happen in their classroom. So I would say to any teacher who hears about creative engagement or thinks about, you know, doing this arts integration, if their immediate reaction is no, no, I don't do art. I, you know, don't feel comfortable having materials in my classroom is to really think that arts integration and creative engagement is not material specific. It does not need to include a lot of materials. Like sometimes it can just be pencil and paper, first of all, which you already have in class. 
but it can really just be more about like how you're activating their creative thinking mm -hmm. and how that level of adding like metaphor or adding, um, you know, the what ifs or the I see, I notice, I wonder, you know, into the learning that now you've engaged them, you know, to become curious learners, to, to be observational, you know, to have sort of a, another sense of mindfulness. All these things I think are important to having a well-rounded kid that aren't necessarily going to be specific to needing to, to feel confident in your own artistic ability or your ability to maintain like a certain level of materials. And one thing that I've heard you talk about that I think, you know, you really seem, you, you model is like learning new things, new skills, it's, it can be stressful. And if it's in a social environment around other people, you're going to feel like you're on stage and you're going to, the potential for embarrassment is just super high and scorn and ridicule, all those things. And, and we see that whenever we do in-person trainings, the summer Institute that you did, you know, we do that in person usually. And it's, we're asking people to get up and do theater together who have never done it before. And they share, you know, the teachers share that they are stressed about that. I, I, we've done some research studies, you know, that, that illustrate how parallel the experience is when you ask teachers to do it and when you ask students to do it. You're right there with the kids learning these new, these new things, you know, whether it's like the online welding class that I know that you and I have talked about before or these um, how to bring LEDs and technology into artwork. I mean, you're, you're right there showing that you don't know, you don't have the answers, you're still developing these skills too. And that seems really important. You think about education and where we've come. I mean, like in reality, everything a kid wants to know, they can look up on their phone. You know, like we are not the experts any longer. We, you know, we're just the gatekeepers now. Like you're, we're not the, you mean like we might be experts in our field, but the kids could go find, look up whatever information. Mm -hmm. If they were so motivated, they could look up anything. So what's, going to be the thing that would get them engaged and want to be part of their own learning. Like I said, instead of just being the passive passenger, you know, like how do we put them in the driver's seat and then yeah. like get them, you know, again, sitting shotgun in that car can be terrifying at times, but you yeah. know, to embrace the ambiguity yeah. of what that learning looks like. So my last question is really about your vision for your school, your district, you've taken on this leadership role to recruit and manage the engagement of dozens of teachers in your district in this project. And I'm just curious, you know, what, what is your vision for, for, for your district, for your community? And yeah. I guess the motivation behind it is that I know how valuable it is to kids that you know, if adults that are working with the kids have this information, then the kids will benefit from it. And whenever I look at anything in education, you know, it's, it's always like, well, how will this benefit my students? This professional development, this way of engaging kids in their learning is just another layer that they can add, you know, that, that can exist with that standardized testing, right? So if you can find a way of incorporating both that maybe you yourself would find more zeal in teaching outside of, you know, what is going to be on the test. Wow. Well, Michelle, this has been really insightful and I'm documenting, I'm doing a, a challenge to myself of documenting 
a metaphor every day for 100 days. And I'm writing down yours today that the foundation course was like showing up to a party with all of your favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like that's about exactly what we're trying to do. So yeah. Thank you for tuning in to the Inside the Box podcast. I'm Ross Anderson, your host, and this podcast is brought to you by the MakeSpace Project, funded by a U.S. Department of Education grant to bring creative engagement into schools all over the country. You can find out more at www.makespaceproject.org. May we all find creative engagement in moments of our days and share the delight with others.